Amen. Good morning. It's so good to be here together this morning to see one another and encourage one another. We're so glad to have you with us this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. And we encourage you, invite you to come back at any opportunity you have. And we're so very glad to have those who are joining us online as well. And I want to thank Kinley uh, so much for filling in last Sunday morning, which was scheduled and Sunday night wasn't. And uh, we, we want to hear from Kinley uh, more, and so we want to schedule him in on Sunday mornings uh, when we can and uh, have him preach. That's, that's important to hear from him as our youth minister, and I appreciate him so very much and uh, did a wonderful job as always. And I thank Kinley for filling in Sunday night as well and uh, got to hopefully elaborate more on his, on his message from the morning and appreciate his willingness and readiness to do that. And my family and I want to thank this church for your love and your prayers and all of the ways that you helped in, in, in many ways uh, during our time while Joyce was in the hospital. She's doing well and here this morning, thankfully, and we thank you very, very much for uh, all of your, your care for us. Thank you. This morning, uh, we're going to continue to look at what Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, these two younger ministers in two different locations, working with two different, in two different settings and with their congregations, uh, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus uh, on the island of Crete working with multiple congregations. And what Paul writes to both of them about faithful churches, about how a church can be a faithful church. Kenley kicked us off with that uh, last week, and we'll look at that this week and next. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and look at verse 14. We'll start there, and notice what Paul says. Remind them of these things. Now, previously, Paul has been writing to Timothy to remind him of things he needs to be reminded of, things he needs to do, things he needs to remember. So he's telling Timothy as the minister, remember this, do this. Uh, and now we see that he turns his attention to tell Timothy, remind them. So he's telling Timothy, here are some things you need to remind the church of so they can be a faithful church. And what are those things that he tells them to remind them of? He goes on to say that a faithful church doesn't argue and fuss over uh, uh, irrelevant uh, uh, points of, of, of thought or philosophy or obscure things and, and false teachings and words and things like that, that they're not fussing and arguing, whether it be over something silly or even over something important. They don't, they're not, they don't have that kind of spirit. They don't get caught up with false teachings and ungodly talk, which he says only leads to more ungodliness. And then he gives Hymenaeus and Philetus as two examples of people who did this. They got caught up with some false teachings about the resurrection and they swerved in their faith. If you think about driving and swerving to miss uh, an animal and you, you overcorrect and land up in the ditch, turned over in, in a wreck, he's saying that's what they did. They swerved in their faith. And in fact, they even upset or overturned the faith of some others 
in their swerving. He said faithful churches don't do that. Don't be like that. But what did Paul say faithful Christians do instead? Look at verse number 15. He writes, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The phrase there, do your best, is one Greek word that means zealous. In other words, be zealous to be approved by God. He's saying be zealous to, be, to please God, to be approved by God. That's what he's saying. It means to make haste. He's saying th this is something you hurry up and do. You're zealous to do this. Do your best to be approved by God, to please God is what he's telling the church. To be a faithful church, we seek to please God, to be approved by God, to live for God and to serve God in every way. Now, it's interesting that when we see him write how we do that, the first thing he says and the only thing he zeroes in on right here is to rightly handle Scripture. Did you notice that? He said, be zealous to be pleasing to God, to be a worker approved by God. And here's how you do it. Handle Scripture correctly. I think that's interesting. He didn't say act right. He didn't say be a good example. He didn't say be nice. And he could have said all those things. And all those things are true. But right here, what he says to Timothy to pass on to the church is how you be a worker that pleases God, approved by God, is you rightly handle Scripture. And, and that, that's interesting because, see, we can, we can say, well, it, it doesn't matter. Just believe whatever you want about particulars as long as we get Jesus right. And uh, as long as we're up here and, and believing in Jesus, then all this stuff down here doesn't really make much of a difference. But that's not what Paul says. Paul said, get Scripture right. Handle it correctly. And how are you going to do that? The only way you can handle Scripture correctly is to be in Scripture, to be a student of the Word, to study the Word of God. That's how you learn to handle it correctly, to educate yourself in the Word of God. And he says, basically, when, when you handle Scripture right, you're going to get everything else right. Because, see, when we read Scripture, that's when we learn about Jesus. We learn about what God has done for us in Christ. And when we get Scripture right, then that means we get Jesus right. And when we get Jesus right, everything else follows behind it. Why? Because we're committed to handling Scripture correctly. Rightly dividing, some translations say, the word of truth. So scripture and how we handle it, how we approach it, how we study it, how we prioritize it, how we uh, uh, teach it, what we believe that scripture teaches is vital to being a faithful church. A faithful church is faithful to scripture so they can please God in their daily lives because it's in God's word that he gave us that we learn how he wants us to live, what he wants us to do, how to live as Christ followers. Now look at verse number 19. Paul says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows 
those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So he's just talked about uh, how people are unstable and false teachings are unstable and, and they'll give out on you. People will fail you. Uh, the things of the world will fail you. Situations will fail you. But he says, God's firm foundation stands. In other words, God's firm foundation is unshakable. It's unbreakable. You, you, you can't upset it. You can't overturn it. It stands firm and rock solid. And you can count on it. You may not can count on everybody. You may not can count on everything. False teachings will fail you. All these arguments and fussing that he just talked about and, and, and false uh, people that believe false teachings and their examples, that, that's all going to fail you. But what you can count on, what you can stand for sure on, is the firm foundation of God. And this foundation, if we ask, well, what, what, what is this firm foundation? It is all that God has done for us in Christ. It is all that he has done to gain our salvation, to, to give us salvation. It's him sending his son, his son dying on the cross, being resurrected. It's him uh, forgiving us of our sins when we're uh, obedient to the gospel and put on Christ in baptism. It's his word that he gave us that he says to prioritize and rightly handle. It's everything he's done. It's in giving us the church. It's all that he has done. That's this firm foundation that he has given us. And he says it stands. It lasts throughout time. There, there's, you know, countries will rise and countries will fall. Leaders and rulers will rise and fall. But throughout history, the only thing that will last that cannot be shaken or destroyed is the firm foundation of God, his word, his church, his salvation. So, like the plaque on a modern-day building you see. You see them in schools where they'll, they'll have a plaque on the inside and it'll say who the builders were, who the superintendent and the board were when that building was built. Sometimes they do it on churches or other buildings on the outside. It might be engraved in stone. Well, well, that's what Paul is giving us the picture of here. And he says, on this firm foundation of God, what's inscribed on there, this seal, that's another... Uh, uh, Example or another de definition of how he means the word seal, what he means by that, is written these two things. Instead of the names of the builders, what's written is these two things. That the Lord knows those who are his and that those who are his depart from iniquity. That's what he tells us in verse 19. So he knows who's, who, who his are, who his people are, his church is, and those who are in his church because they're in his church, they are committed to departing from iniquity. Now, Paul illustrates this call, this, this expectation for God's people to depart from iniquity in verses 22, 20 through 22. And he gives us this example of, he says, a large house, meaning the house of a wealthy person who would have a lot of things around the house. And remember, we're talking especially about back then where uh, uh, people were, were very much, most people were poor. They didn't have much at all. But in a large house, in a wealthy house, in a, in a mansion, then there might, there's going to be vases and bowls and cups and, and plates and pots and pans and all kinds of different things in this wealthy person's large house. And some are going to be made of gold and silver, some of wood and clay, all different kinds of materials. 
And the different materials are not the point that Paul is making. He's trying to get you to imagine this, to see this, to realize, look into this wealthy person's house and to see all these different containers, these vessels. And, and that represents all the different people in the Lord's church, people of all different kinds. And then what does he say about, how does he illustrate uh, uh, God's people departing from iniquity? He shows us how. He says, therefore, if anyone, uh, well, first he says, some are for honorable use and some dishonorable. Look at verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so he's talking about God's people in God's church. And the vessels made of gold, silver, wood, or clay represent different people in the Lord's church. But the point is about cleanliness, spiritual cleanliness. That's the point Paul's making. And he's saying it's sad but true, but not everyone in the church is where they ought to be. Not everyone in the church is striving to be uh, to depart from iniquity. Not everyone in the church is letting God work on them to make them what they ought to be. They're still living, as Paul says in other places, in their old self, in those, those sinful things, practices and behaviors and ways of thinking and talking and living. So that's how they're living, and, and, and that's dishonorable. And he just gave the examples of Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, that's some examples of, of what I mean. But then there's some who are honorable like Timothy and many there in the church in Ephesus. That they're living in honorable ways and God can use them because they're making themselves available to be useful. So no matter what kind of vessel or pot or pan you are, the message is I, I got to get myself cleaned up. I got to be clean so that I can be used by God. And so that ought to be uh, what we strive to do, that ought to be what every church strives to be. And that's what a faithful church looks like. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus swerved in their faith. They weren't striving to be honorable, uh, but they were dishonorable. And certainly we're all under construction. No, no one of us, none, none of us have arrived where we can say, yeah, I'm done. I've reached the point of perfection. I don't have anything else to work on. I've got all this fixed and under control. No, we're all under construction. The problem is that Paul's saying that some people, they're, they're, everyone's a construction site, but some people don't have any workers showing up to work on their spiritual lives. Does that make sense? And we all need workers who are actually working, not just standing out there waiting for concrete to dry, looking around and smoking and that kind of... We need workers to show up and work. In other words, you've got to be serious about your spiritual life and get to work on that. But it goes two ways, right? There's work we have to do and there's work we've got to let God do in our lives. So then in verse 22... He tells us, here's how you cleanse yourself. Here's how you clean yourself up. You want to get clean? What you would, talk, what you would say to uh, someone who's, who's a drinker, someone who's on drugs or whatever, you say, you want to get clean? Well, here's what you do. Here's what you need to do. And that's what Paul tells us. You want to be a dish, useful for the master, ready to be put to work? He says to do two things, flee and pursue. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So Paul says we need to flee 
and we need to pursue. We need to flee sinful things, and we need to pursue godly things. Now, that word flee tells us that we don't just sit back and let things happen to us. That means we don't just sit back and, and, and uh, grow accustomed to sin. We don't sit back and just justify it or tolerate it or just accept it as, well, that's just the way things are. That's just, that's just me. That's just how I'm wired or that's just him. Uh, we don't sit back and just uh, rationalize it or justify it or minimize it. He says, no, you be like Joseph did and you flee. You get out of there. You get away from sin. You don't just sit back and let it exist around you and be in your life. You get away from it. You don't learn to accept it and live with it. But then when you flee something, when you flee sin, you need to pursue something. While, instead, while you're fleeing, you need to have something to, to, to run to, to pursue. And he tells us what we need to pursue. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And he's, I'm glad he added that last part because it lets us know that I'm not alone when I'm fleeing. I'm not alone when I'm trying to pursue these things and in the struggle of that sometimes. He says, because a faithful church is in this together. A faithful church does this together. A faithful church is there for one another and we flee together. We help one another flee from sin and ungodliness and we're there for one another and we help each other pursue godliness and righteousness and all the things that we're supposed to pursue. And I think that says something about being here together. Being an active, engaged, regular attender of the body of Christ. Being at all the youth group stuff. Being in Bible class. Getting your kids here. Why? Because we're in this together. We're trying to help each other flee from the ungodly things and pursue godliness. And, and when, when I'm not here, you can't help me flee and pursue. And when you're not here, we can't help you flee and pursue. We're in this together. So I, I know I can't do it when I just come when I feel like it. If I came when I feel like it, when my body feels like it, I don't know how many times I'd be here a year. You might be able to count them on one or two hands, right? Anybody feel that way? It's time to get up and, oh, man, is it time already? Or you just wish you had one more day to relax, one more day to get stuff done, one more, uh, one more hour in the evening. But what we see in Scripture is that a faithful church is there together to help each other. We're united together in this effort. That's what a faithful church does. Now, look at what Paul writes to Titus in chapter 2. And in verses 1 through 10, Paul wrote to, he writes to Titus, about what faithful churches look like. Now, in chapter 2 and verse 1, he starts off with, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That's how he starts off what he's about to say. He said, but Titus, you teach what is in accordance with what accords with sound doctrine. And then what does he go on to teach Titus to teach to the church? He goes on to say there are roles and relationships and expectations for older men, for older women, for younger women, for younger men. There are things that they need to learn. There are, there are ways they need to learn to live. There are, there are expectations for their age and whether they're male or female. So they, they, There's a way in which they need to help one another live. 
And again, we got to be here among each other, around each other to help that help make that happen. And so he's saying, old men, older women, young men, younger women, there's some things you need to learn from one another. And we need older men to, to teach, to invest in the lives of younger men. And younger men, we need to be open to letting older men talk to us and tell us some things and share life with us and pass on some spiritual wisdom in our lives. And, and younger women the same way. We need to, you need to find the older women who have that godly wisdom that you can just soak up and take home with you. And, and we need younger men and younger women to learn that I'm, I don't just sit around and, and do what I want, live how I want, and, and just focus on my career and my hobbies until I get old, and then I focus on my spiritual life. He said, no, there's some ways in which you as a younger Christian are supposed to live and learn to live godly lives that are faithful to God. And so some believe that these instructions are tied to their culture at their time. What he just said about older women, older women, uh, older men, younger men and women. But verse 1 makes it clear that these roles and expectations, these lifestyles, these practices, these behaviors are tied to sound doctrine. Because he says, here's what you teach. Teach what's in accordance with sound doctrine. And here's what you teach. In other words, this is God's these are God's instructions for all people of all ages in all times. And when older men do that, when older women do the things that Paul describes here, younger men do what Paul describes, younger women do the things that God uh, puts here in Scripture, writes here in Scripture then that is a testimony and a witness to the world of here's how relationships are supposed to be. Here's how people can live and exist among one another. Look at the glory of the church because people, men and women of all ages, all generations can learn from one another and it coexist together and be that kind. Look at that body that that makes. That glorifies God, and that is attractive to many people who don't know Christ, as opposed to the fussing and the arguing and the division that we saw earlier in 2 Timothy. So now Paul tells Titus why we live this way. Why, why waste our time on this? Why put forth effort on this? Why, Paul? What's the point? What's the motivation? Look at verses 11 through 14 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. What motivates a church to be a faithful church? It's the grace of God. Paul says the grace of God, when you understand that the grace of God is what motivates you to do all the things that God asks of you, to be all that you can be to glorify God, to live to be uh, pleasing to God, approved by God in your life. It's the grace of God that trains us in how to live, trains us in godliness, to turn from ungodliness, to live godly, God-glorifying lives. 
He says that it's the grace of God that brought us salvation in Jesus. And it's so when we get that, that's what Paul, he wants us to get that. When that clicks, when that makes sense to you, when you feel that prick in your heart as they did in Acts chapter 2, when you're like the Ethiopian eunuch and you say, stop the chariot, I get it. Then he's saying, then everything else falls in line behind that because your motivation is because of the grace of God in my life. You see, God's grace instructs us, it trains us to live in a new way in our new life in Christ as we wait for our Savior to return. See, a faithful church never forgets what Jesus did to redeem us and we're zealous then. There's that word zealous again. We're zealous to do good works for the glory of God. So what makes us zealous for good works? What is it that makes us zealous to do good deeds? It is the grace of God in our life. And that's not some fluffy thing that has no real meaning that's just kind of a vapor floating around in space. That's not what the grace of God is. Paul just told us it's Jesus coming to die on the cross for our sins. It's his death, burial, resurrection. It's us uh, putting our hand to the plow and living for him, devoting our lives to him, uh, rightly handling scripture, committed to serving him in every way, living among one another in the body uh, as we should to build each other up, to help each other flee and pursue. That, that's, that is, encompasses the grace of God and so much more. But if what God has done for us, that grace of God doesn't move us, then what will? If that isn't enough to move us in our lives, in our spiritual lives, to get off, get off our spiritual rumps, then what will? If that doesn't move us to, to get committed, fully committed, then what will? The grace of God is our motivation for all that we do. Have you been moved by the grace of God in your life? Have you been moved so much that you want to be committed to him, fully committed, not halfway committed, not, not, not I do it for a little while and then I sizzle out, fully committed to serving, to serving God, to glorifying God in your life, to being a faithful church. Have you been moved enough to put on Christ in baptism, to obey the gospel, be united with Christ? Have you been moved to start that journey in your Christian life? Maybe you're moved to want to ask questions about that, to want to study about that. Maybe you need, you're moved to ask for prayers to get faithful again. Maybe you need prayers for other reasons. We want to encourage you to respond to the gospel message in the way that you need to as you come forward as we stand and sing.